Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to thepetecalendarshow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. The phone, or the uh, email, rather, Pete at the PeteCallanerShow.com and on Twitter at Pete Calliner. So this from uh, Michigan. This story out of Michigan from WXYZ.com. It's a television station, WXYZ, which that, that's, that's pretty good call letters. I don't know how you would make it stand for something, like from an acronym standpoint, you know? But anyway, Oakland County, Michigan. The sheriff is named Michael Bouchard. And uh, the other day he announced the creation of a new task force called Southeast Michigan Collaborate, Arrest, Prosecute, or SEMCAB. Southeast Michigan Collaborate, Arrest, Prosecute, SEMCAB, right? It's a task force. It's got a whole bunch of uh, members of all these different police departments and sheriff's offices all around the area in Southeast Michigan, obviously. Why am I telling you about this? Well, specifically, this task force is going to address the rise in break-ins in, into people's homes, burglaries into people's homes, in upscale homes, pretty much exclusively in the exclusive parts of the Detroit suburbs. So these very wealthy neighborhoods outside of Detroit, they're getting burglarized, a lot of them. Like um, Bouchard says here, they believe 30 to 40 homes have been hit by the crews, these burglary crews, since September. September, October. No. So three months. You got 30 to 40 homes hit in three months. That's like two a week, three a week, right? Get this. It's suspected that this is an international criminal operation. Bouchard says transnational gangs are operating across the country. They're targeting high-end homes, jewelry stores, and cars in many different areas in the United States. Bouchard described the crews, which are believed to consist of four to six people, as highly functional and well-trained, much like me. They reportedly use a jammer to overcome wireless security systems that depend on Wi-Fi to operate. And they released, at this press conference, they released a video that came off of a, a home security system. And you can see three guys at the back door of this house. And one of them has a device with a couple antennas sticking out of it. And that jams the Wi-Fi. And so now you're, it just basically takes your entire alarm system offline. The, the, the crews are dressed all in black. They got backpacks. They got gloves, face coverings, obviously. 
Well, they're very worried about COVID, probably. Bouchard says they are non-confrontational and their goal is to get in and out of the homes quickly. He says the crews target high-end homes and they can where they can approach from the back without being observed. Right? So a private backyard, that's what they look for. They enter through the windows, often on the second story. They are looking for high-end valuables that can be sold off quickly and have been known to take smaller to medium-sized safes. That was another one of the videos they showed. It was probably, I don't know, a safe that's maybe three feet tall. Not like one of the huge, like, vault, you know, size safes, like, taller than, you know, the average American male, which is, like, 5'10". Um, not like the big safe, but half that. Like, and they, they show, the video shows these guys just, like, pushing it down the stairs and having it just slide down uh, the, the, the back stairs off out of the house. And then they take it. They lift the thing and they take it with them. And then they apparently found one of these safes several miles away, opened up, but they broke, they broke into it. They're looking for high-end valuables that can be sold off quickly. Um, as long as they can get them to a second location, they take the safes. Bouchard says four people are already in custody in the county jail in connection with the ring. And others are in custody in other parts of the country. And they're working to connect them to robberies in Michigan. The crews are mostly from Latin America, with Bouchard saying that the crews working the southeast Michigan area are believed to be mostly chilly, very cold, hence the masks and the gloves. Oh, no, sorry, they're Chilean. They're from Chile. Sorry, Chile. They're Chilean. They they are believed to strike quickly in one area before moving on to another. Bouchard says people looking to protect their homes should focus on redundant systems that do not rely only on Wi-Fi for communication. So hardwire your house. So we're going back to that, I guess. Because like I'm old enough to remember when that was one of the features you could get when you bought a house if it was already wired up. I, the first house I bought, I had CPI come out, and they did the whole wiring job. But then they, the whole industry started moving away from that, right? Because Wi-Fi was available. Now people just walk up to your front door with the jammer, And now it just takes your whole system offline. Like, that's a problem. Because the homes that are being built now, they're not built with the pre-wire. There was like this window, right, where they would do when they were, I had like the second house that uh, when Christy and I got married, we bought our second house. And that that house had the pre-wire in it. It was built with the wiring already in it. And then they moved away from it. He also says people who live in the areas that fit the pattern of the robberies should consider calling police if their Wi-Fi goes down and they cannot figure out why, because that could point investigators to an area that's being targeted or hit. So they're asking for people to call if you lose Wi-Fi at your house. If your Wi-Fi goes down at your house. Here's the problem. If you don't have a landline, how are you making that call? Well, I guess you I guess it would revert. Yeah, it would go to the cell phone territory. So you can still make the call. Okay. But yeah, if you're connected through the Wi-Fi, you'd have to go into the roaming mode, right? This is concerning. CNN won't accept that Americans are actually worried about crime. And by the way, there was a video that came out, uh, somebody at uh, Carolina Place Mall the other day, 
was uh, videotaping a smash and grab at Reed's, the jewelry shop in the mall. Two or three guys, you know, masks, hammers, bashing the glass, stealing stuff out of the counters and running out. Charles C.W. Cook, writing at National Review, he says, if journalists didn't recast basic voter concerns as symbols of complex, deep insecurities, what would they do with their time? (laughs) Which is a very fair question to ask. We used to describe members of the media as reporters. Presently, script writers might be more apt, though. Script writers. For a useful illustration of this trend, consider how keen certain reporters are to explain to the voting public what their well-stated concerns must really be about. See, like, when voters say they're concerned about crime, whether it's South American burglary gangs from Chile coming through and and uh, jamming people's home security systems, or it's smashing grabs at the uh, at the jewelry store at the mall, or the 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 videos you see of people going in and just swiping merchandise at you know clothing and stuff and just running out. When pe- when voters tell pollsters that they are concerned about the rise in crime. The reporters, for some reason at CNN, they, they try to reframe it. Like, oh, okay, well, you say it's about crime. That's your concern. But no, it's really about something else. Like Nathaniel Meyerson. This was a guy, Nathaniel Meyerson at CNN, delivered a classic when he insisted that, quote, the anxiety over shoplifting that is spreading across the United States is actually a stand-in for larger concerns of cultural, economic, or political changes. Right? So he just pivots right away from it. People say, hey, you know what? Uh, I don't like all of this crime. I don't like the idea that I go into a CVS and everything is behind plastic uh, doors locked up. I don't like the idea that I go to the mall and I'm seeing you know, groups of young people just going in and swiping all sorts of stuff and running out. Meanwhile, I'm paying, so that means I have to pay more. I don't like the idea of burglary gangs. And by the way, this is not new. I remember there was a, there was a, a, a robbery ring like this that was operating in South Charlotte probably 15, 20 years ago. Except they would actually just walk up to your front door, kick the door in, swipe the TV off the wall or off of your credenza or whatever, and then walk out. While you were home, they did not care. And then they would speed away. So, no, it's not about the crime. No, no, no. It's about cultural, economic, or political changes. Uh, No, Nathaniel, I can assure you, it's just about the crime. (laughs) It's about the crime. Look, I know you say you're concerned about crime, but you're not really concerned about crime. Like, that's what CNN and a lot of other media outlets do. People say they're concerned about rising crime, but we're always kind of told, oh, no, no, it's uh, there's something else going on. CNN's Nathaniel Meyerson, he said that, oh, actually, anxiety over shoplifting is actually a stand-in for larger concerns of cultural, economic, or political changes. Charles C.W. Cook at National Review, he says, taking his readers on a half-potted journey through the recent past, Meyerson explained that worries about private property theft have historically been driven by alarm about the changing role of women 
counterculture fears, and a desire to oppose criminal justice policy reforms. This time, he concluded with the deployment of a carefully laundered quote that the panic is the product of, quote, broader concerns about law and disorder. Well, yeah, that's the point. People are concerned about the disorder. It's almost as if our, you know, political betters, uh, the the elites, uh, the people in charge, it's almost as if they're trying to generate so much chaos that people clamor for anybody to come along and provide order. Quite why Meyerson believes that the causation must run in this direction is unclear, given that elsewhere in his piece, he concedes openly that, quote, shoplifting increased in some cities during the first half of the year compared to pre-pandemic levels. Shoplifting has increased compared to pre-pandemic levels. Toothpaste and deodorant locked up at stores. Videos of thieves smashing store windows and grabbing merchandise have rocketed across the news and social media. Companies are calling theft a national crisis. Some companies say they're even closing over shoplifting. Cook says it seems far more likely that people are worried about law and disorder because of shoplifting rather than they are worried about shoplifting because of law and order or disorder, right? He's exactly right. The reason why people are worried about it is because we see the things happening. Americans say they dislike shoplifting because it makes shopping more dangerous and more annoying because it raises the likelihood that their local store is going to be closed. And you've got this contempt for the law that's just being bred in all sorts of places all around. And no, what, what they really mean by that is that they dislike shoplifting because it makes shopping more dangerous and more annoying because it raises the likelihood that local stores are going to be closed because it breeds contempt for the law. Like people are telling reporters this and media, they're telling them this and they, it's like they don't believe it. They just cannot believe that people are concerned about these because they are concerning things to be concerned about. I got a uh, tweet here uh, from Mama Tooted or Mom, Mama Tooted. No, I think it's right the first way. Anyway, uh, I've often wondered if the defund the police efforts stretch goal is to no longer have local police because when it gets so bad locally, there will be no other choice but to call in the National Guard. We should all be very wary of this now before it's too late. Yeah, it's uh, it's concerning to me because I like I do wonder what is the quote solution that will be offered when the chaos becomes so great. You're starting to see some uh, you're starting to see some reaction to it. I've got the re- uh, the results here in this story about what happened in Houston, the mayor's race there, which is encouraging. You know, the, the fallout over illegal immigration uh, after they started busing people or flying them to New York City and Chicago, and now we're getting some movement? Maybe? 
704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. Email is Pete at the Pete Callender Show.com and on Twitter at Pete Callender. I received this message from the Hellion who says, Pete, I broke down and went to Walmart for basic white socks. They had the socks locked up. A lady had to come and open the doors and she had to reach in and get them out. She wouldn't even let me get them. Well, maybe you looked like a thief, Hellion. No. <laughs> With a name like Hellion, what other conclusion is she supposed to draw? Yeah, how are you to be treated? Right. You're like, oh, I'm the Hellion on Twitter, but you could totally trust me not to rob you. <laughs> uh, no, like this is this is concerning. This is a low trust society. That's a, It's a symptom of a low trust society. And lots of things don't happen and don't work well in a low trust society. Much of it economic. Um, Richard says, Pete, the break-ins you are discussing happened here in Charlotte over the summer. Several in Ballantine Country Club. In one case, they moved a safe across the golf course. Really? I did not hear that. I mean, that part of me would, like, would want to see the video. <laughs> Just kind of, I mean, it's, I'm sure it looked really weird. Um. Two years ago, two years ago, when the United States was in the midst of the worst bout of inflation in four decades, Rick Perlstein took to the pages of New York Magazine to argue that the fears that he was witnessing across the nation were probably about something else. Examining the late 1970s and early 1980s, which was the last time America had suffered such rapid price increases, Perlstein wondered, quote, what were these people really talking about when they talked about inflation? Right, like, like, like this is all some sort of code conversation we're having. Like, man, the price of stuff is ridiculous. Look, Chrissy and I, we met, uh, uh, met up with uh, family yesterday. We went out to eat at a restaurant. I will not name it. I'm, I'm not here to disparage any restaurants. But um, the prices, I got shrimp and vegetables. Shrimp on a bed of of grilled vegetables, grilled shrimp, and it said a pound of shrimp, and it came in at seven pieces. Which I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm buying that was a pound, but whatever. Grilled vegetables was like not even a full cup. I don't think like a measuring cup, not even a full cup of the vegetables on the plate. Now they gussied it up with some kale or some lettuce or something which became inedible because you got the hot food that sat on top of it. So you like wilted it all, turned it all mushy and stuff. I'm not going to eat that lettuce. $25. Christy got a piece of salmon that was like 33 or something. Like that's nuts. The mac and cheese side dish was $6.50 and that was one cup. That was just a little bowl. It was like a cup of mac and cheese for six fifty. But this is all code for something else, right? I'm I'm speaking in code. It's not that holy crap stuff's really expensive now. It's not that. No, no, no. They were actually having some sort of uh, uh, you know subterranean uh, kind of conversation underneath the talk about inflation and prices. So with this. Rocket scientist at uh, New York Magazine, Rick Perlstein, 
He says, what are they really talking about when they talked about inflation in the 70s and 80s? And he concluded that instead of inflation, they were actually engaged in an unrelated moral panic that had been provoked by the suspicion that more permissiveness, more provli- I hate this word, profligacy, profligacy, provlic. Yeah, whatever. More individual freedom, more sexual freedom. All of these things had sent society spiraling out of control. See, again, it's like when they're talking about inflation, what they're really talking about is sex. Like, no, it's literally sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, man. We're talking about the price of the cigar. How do you get like, how do you get there from here? Once again, like they hear all of these dog whistles that they think people are blowing and they're all, they're the only ones that hear the dog whistle. Because they're the ones that view all of this stuff through these prisms, and they just assume everybody else does too. Surely people can't be concerned about shoplifting. Surely people can't be concerned about uh, just crime in general. Surely they're not concerned about inflation. No, no, it's it, it's about who's stupin' who, right? It's all about it's about gay marriage, or it's about trans, or it's about no, like I got concerns about those other things too. But when I talk about inflation, we're simply talking about inflation. This, of course, Charles C.W. Cook says this is all utterly preposterous. Like crime, economic stability is an elementary, perhaps even pre-political question. That's a great point. It's a economic stability and crime, or a you know a stable society when it comes to crime. Right? These these measurements of stability are pre-political. They your politics comes after the desire for that stability. Um, He says uh, economic stability is an elementary question for a supermajority of voters. People loathe inflation because it blows apart their budgets. It devalues their savings. It makes it difficult to plan for the future. It triggers interest rate hikes that render uh, prohibitive the cost of borrowing for a home or car. Inflation is a concrete problem, not an abstract one. I saw it today. I think it was Wall Street Journal published a stat. Do you know what the, I think it was the average, I can look it up here. Uh, I think it is the average monthly mortgage payment now. The average monthly mortgage payment. Um, now I'm looking for it. It's over three grand. Here it is. Wall Street Journal analysis of the housing market. Average monthly new home payment when Biden took office was just under $1,800 a month. Now it's $3,322. Like, that's crushing. $3,300 a month in mortgage payments. And it was $1,787, what, four years ago, three years ago. But you're going to tell people, oh, no, no, that's not really what you're complaining about. It's not that you can't afford a home. I mean, think about that. Like you have all of these young people who are starting their lives. I'm thinking, you know, the millennials, but also to a lesser degree, what, Gen Z's, right? They want to move out of apartments. They want to move into a home and $3,300, $3,300 a month in mortgage payments. Now, I understand that that's average. So it's got a lot of high-end homes, you know, value in there as well but if you're young starting out that that's unattainable 
That's unattainable, and wages haven't kept up with that. Inflation, crime. Both are metrics of of stability, or in this case, instability. And people are noticing. And they're now starting to vote accordingly. We're seeing more and more examples of it. I mentioned the mayors of Chicago and New York on the immigration issue. Again, instability, societal instability, putting pressure on their budgets, cutting other services and the like. In Houston, Texas, there was a um, runoff for mayor, John Whitmire versus Sheila Jackson Lee. In a battle of the 70-somethings, John Whitmire, Democratic state senator in Texas, defeated Sheila Jackson Lee in that mayoral runoff on Saturday. You know what his focus was? Crime. And he's got a lifetime of work focusing on, you know, get tough on crime measures in the state legislature. So the guy has a track record on it. And that's what got him into the mayor's seat. All right. Do the current world events have you wondering whether we are teetering on the edge of catastrophe? Are you concerned it's going to reach our shores? Okay. So what are you doing about your concerns? Let me help. Carolina Readiness Supply. At CarolinaReadiness.com, whether you're looking to expand your emergency preparedness supplies or you have no idea where to even begin, Carolina Readiness Supply can help you. Food, water purifiers, tools, first aid kits, instructional materials, camping and hiking supplies even. Because being prepared is just smart. Carolina Readiness Supply has 2,000 square feet of supplies and educational materials that you'll need for any kind of emergency. In Waynesville and always at CarolinaReadiness.com, veteran-owned Carolina readiness supply will you be ready when the lights go out news talk 11 10 3 wbt democratic state senator john whitmire 74 years old defeated democratic representative sheila jackson lee 73 years old in the houston mayoral race in saturday's runoff election after a campaign heavily focused on voter concerns over safety on the streets Whitmire, a perennial tough-on-crime voice who for decades heralded Texas regulations over public safety, was declared the winner by the Associated Press with 57% reporting. At that point, Whitmire was leading by almost 2 to 1. With backing from the city's fire department and police unions and a multi-million dollar campaign war chest, Whitmire was the early favorite in the race and finished first in the 18-candidate general election in November. Because nobody secured 50% of the vote, they had to go to a runoff, which he won on Saturday. Whitmire leaned on a coalition of moderate Democrats, independents, and conservative voters with a prominent campaign promise to make the city safer with increased policing. City elections are officially nonpartisan, but, uh, you know, America's fourth largest city, Houston, with 2.3 million people, Democrats have held the office since 1982. The showdown between Whitmire and Jackson Lee illuminates the fault lines within the Democrat Party over how to deal with crime on a local level, also seen in mayoral races in Los Angeles and New York City in recent years. Politico's Andrew Z- Andrew 
Zhang, reports, first elected to the state legislature as a college student back in 1973, Whitmire ran a campaign that hewed closely to concerns of local voters. So he's been he's been doing this his entire career. Crime, infrastructure issues, and city financial controls. Core services, right? These are the things that the local government is supposed to be focusing on. Core services, basic services. And when you start going far afield and start doing all this other stuff, you lose sight of what your core mission is. Along the way, oh, sorry, I got to back up here. In comparison, Sheila Jackson Lee, 15-term member of Congress, she talked about tackling public safety, but also elevated concerns about abortion and Trump stinks. <laughs> Those were her. I don't know. Yeah, that's weird. It didn't resonate in a in a mayor's race trying to make it. She tried to she tried to cast this guy Whitmire as some Trump style Republican. <laughs> and he's a Democrat. Guy's been a lifelong Democrat. Has held office for 40 years as a Democrat. And she's trying to make him sound like like he's a Trump Republican or something. It's just whatever. Along the way, she notched endorsements from big national names like Bill and Hillary Clinton, Nancy Pelosi, and Hakeem Jeffries. Oh, and that didn't no, that didn't win the day for you, huh? Didn't didn't get you over the finish line first, huh? Hmm. Weird. Even with those big name Democrats behind her, she could not make up the deficit. Her campaign became mired in scandal after an expletive filled rant, allegedly of Jackson Lee berating her staffers got leaked online in October, uh, and then she expressed regret in a statement. This gets to the uh, a story I mentioned earlier in Buncombe County. Same sort of dynamic occurring there. They tried to do some... It's so ridiculous. So APD, Asheville Police Department, has seen the same sort of problems that Charlotte Mecklenburg and, and a lot of other departments all over the country, in particularly blue cities, right, They've been pilloried. They've been demonized. Police officers have. And so cops don't want to work there. And they're not, they're not getting defended by city leaders. And so they start quitting or they start retiring. They go into different uh, jurisdictions. And so what happens then is you have lawlessness and disorder that takes over. And so in, in Asheville, they're like, well, okay, look, I know we said let's defund the police. You've got city council members that ran on the platform and stuff trying to defund the police. And so the sheriff, Buncombe County Sheriff, has been sending deputies into downtown to act as to act as city police officers, basically, to do patrols, deputy patrols, because for some reason, the APD officers, they're terrible. But the Buncombe County Sheriff's deputies, they're fantastic. Might it have something to do? With the fact that the sheriff is an elected black Democrat, and so people think that that's okay in downtown Asheville, whereas the city police chief is a is a white dude hired by the city council. I, I don't know. It's just bizarre to me that you would have this request for $186,000 to pay for more deputy patrols of downtown when that's supposed to be what APD does. Thank you.